Hi there, I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. We're real-life best friends, but we met playing fake-life best friends, Turk and JD, on the sitcom Scrubs. 20 years later, we've decided to re-watch the series one episode at a time and put our memories into a podcast you can listen to at home. We're going to get all our special guest friends like Sarah Chalk, John C. McGinley, Neil Flynn, Judy Reyes. Show creator Bill Lawrence, editors, writers, and even prop masters will tell us about what inspired the series and how we became a family. You can listen to the podcast Fake Doctors, Real Friends with Zach and Donald on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. You've probably always wanted to learn an instrument, right? Let Musician be your guide. It is an amazing app that is your personal music tutor. It's the best way to learn, practice, and master an instrument, and it listens to you play and gives you feedback in real time on your accuracy and your timing. Become the musician you've always wanted to be. Visit musician.com slash words to try Musician with a 20% discount using the code WORDS. This thing is amazing. Try it out. You'll love it. Hi, everybody. How are you? I'm Ray Harkins. You're hanging out on 100 Words or Less, the podcast. I don't know why I like to be so, like, uh, I don't know, syllabic, like just really punchy on the intros to make sure you're paying attention. <laughs> Anyways, we're here talking about independent music like we always do week after week after week after this is episode 353. We're approaching the, I think it's seven year anniversary. I was trying to calculate it and I think it's uh, yeah episode 364 will be seven years. <laughs> That's insane. That's just like, it's almost as old as my child, which is uh, crazy to think about. But the guest this week is Ryan Clark. He plays in a band called Demon Hunter. He also previously played in Focal Point, Training for Utopia, and so many other, well, those are basically extremely meaningful bands to me. And that was the main thrust of why I wanted Ryan on the show. I mean, Demon Hunter, as I will reveal in the interview, I'm not the hugest fan of, but uh, his work, not only as a musician and an artist, uh, in all the stuff that he does with his, uh, his, his, just his output in general, I just really, really respect him and wanted to have him on the show. And we did it. And it's great. But before I tell you about anything else, you need to go to rockabilia.com, type in the code PCJabberJaw, and that gets you 10% off of your order. And they have so many items that you could possibly want. And you can just order like, you know, $1,000 worth of merch and you're going to get $100 off. That's like me buying you, what, 10 shirts? <laughs> it's great. But I, I, in all honesty, if you're not ordering from Rockabilia, you are messing up. They're the best in this game, as far as I'm concerned. Fast shipping. They know exactly what to do with your order if there is any issue whatsoever. They're great customer service. I just, I love what they do. So thank you for your continued support, Rockabilia. Please visit rockabilia.com like I urge you all the time to do, okay? And what else do I got? I am announcing a show that uh, Taken is playing. We are playing June 22nd. Tickets are almost sold out. Chain reaction with our good buddies and curl up and die. If you have, uh, you know, missed those announcements or what have you, I, you know, I get it. Everyone's busy. Uh, but uh, buy your tickets. Allages.com. You can go to the chain reaction website. Uh, last I was told, there was like, I don't know, less than 50 tickets left. So uh, it'll probably sell out. And it's going to be a really, really fun show. It's uh, with our friends, uh, like I said, Curl Up and Die, but also Seizures and Regional Justice Center. It is a great hardcore show. Diverse Bill. I love love when that happens so yeah that's what's happening next month and uh, you also please 
please tell other people about this podcast. Like, I know that sounds like I'm begging, like, oh, I need, like, the show needs more listeners. That's not what I'm aiming for. What I'm aiming for is the people that don't know about this show. Like, there are probably friends of yours that kind of dabble in podcasts. They're like, oh, yeah, I like punk, hardcore, or whatever. Like, put this podcast on their player. Like, literally grab their phone out of their hand, type it in whatever podcast player they have, and be like, here, listen to the, just go through the archive, you know, pick out some episodes, download them for them, download your favorite episode for them. And then, um, yeah. And then hopefully they'll, they'll be keyed into this because that's the only way that this show not only grows bigger, but I just want the people that should know about this to know about this. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, and what else do I have to tell you? I have to tell you that, uh, Ryan Clark was just such a good guest. Okay. He, both Focal Point and Training for Utopia. I got to see Focal Point once, I think. And Training for Utopia, I got to see a couple of times. But both of those records, um, you know, Suffering of the Masses from Focal Point, and uh, I would say probably the first, the self-titled EP from Training for Utopia. I did like Plastic Soul Impalement, which was their uh, Training for Utopia's record that came out after the EP. But uh, that EP, man, that thing just slays. And Focal Point just really spoke to my... Uh, Christian, hardcore kid, vegetarian, straight edge sensibilities. Like I just, I love that record. I remember, I think it was my sophomore year of high school. I listened to that record so much. It was actually between my freshman year and my sophomore year. I remember traveling. I was like on a two week trip over in Ireland. And I remember, I think I listened to that record like two or three times a day. Like I just I could not stop playing it. It was like, once it was over, it was like, boom. All right, there we go. Let's listen to it again. So, uh, yeah, I was really, really excited that Ryan was able to come onto the show because, uh, yeah, I bug him about a lot of stuff he hasn't been bugged about in a while. And, uh, Demon Hunter is a, is a, it's a band that I am not personally a huge fan of, but they are incredible at what they do. And they just released their ninth and 10th full length. Like, come on, give me a break. Such a legit band. So anyways, that's kind of the reason why he came on, but it was mostly for me to bug him about his old bands. But (laughs) anyways, that's what we got. And here is the interview. Okay. I'll talk to you in a bit. You know, I'll, uh, at, the, at the very offset, Focal Point was a, a huge, huge band for me. And I definitely saw you guys play at uh, the barn in Riverside. I think it was with Overcome, if I'm not mistaken. I'm from Southern California. so Wow. Yeah, that would have been a while ago. Yes, quite some time ago. Um, and the thing that, I mean, once I was able to kind of, you know, because I had just started going to shows at that time. But the thing that I re- reflected me as a unique experience where... Here is, you know, Focal Point that clearly has, at that time, you had released a, a record on Tooth and Nail, but also had released a 7-inch on Life Sentence Records, which obviously was the complete sort of antithesis of what <laughs> Tooth and Nail and Solid State sure. was. Yeah. And, like, bands, you know, really didn't kind of cross over. I mean, it, honestly, it's like you guys and Overcome, really, were the, <laughs> the bands that kind of uh, towed around in both worlds. Um, yeah. I'm guessing that was just a function of who was interested in kind of releasing your music or was this an intentional like, Hey, yeah, of course we'll release seven inch and life sentence. And then, uh, yeah, well, of course we'll work with, uh, with tooth and nail. Um, or was there something that was like, yeah, we want to make this statement. Right. Um, man, I'm, I'm going to have to go down memory lane. Uh, and I apologize. And, <laughs> that's all right. Um, so I remember we had, become fans of a lot of the tooth and nail bands at the time. Um, 
and we got the opportunity to play a show with Overcome, which, I mean, honestly, might have been the one that you saw. Um, was that, do you think, prior to us having having a record out? I I want to say it was after. I, I'm fairly certain you did play with Overcome at the barn, and I mean it had to have been with a larger band as well. I just can't recall who it was, but okay. uh, but yeah, it, it definitely was. You did you did play with them? Okay. Uh, well, I'm thinking about a show that I believe we got the opportunity to play with Overcome, and I want to say it was Bakersfield. Um, and after we played that show, um, we had I, I think we somehow got the contact for the owner of life sentence, uh, Dan Gump. And he had showed some interest in us and he actually drove out from Salt Lake city to Sacramento and watched us play in our, in our practice space. And he showed some interest in, in putting something out. I'm not exactly sure where that came from other than, um, he had worked with overcome and, you know, we had kind of, had some correspondence with those guys and I think that he was, you know, pretty open-minded as far as that stuff went, you know, he was obviously more interested in releasing the straight edge stuff. But at that time we were kind of decidedly a straight edge slash Christian band. Um, so we were, we were willing to kind of wear both of those things on our sleeve. So I think that was part of what interested him in us. And after we played that show with overcome, we kind of both at that time had, um, are seven inches out and Jason Stinson after that show phoned uh, Brandon Ebel at tooth and nail and said, we just played with this band. You got to check them out. And Brandon called my parents' house at the time where my brother and I lived and left a message saying, Hey, this is Brandon at tooth and nail. Um, Jason Stinson told me that I have to reach out to you guys cause he really loved you guys. And, um, Jason's really picky. So, I know that you, you guys must be good if he likes you. So that's kind of how the story goes. And everything after that was rapid fire, you know, you were just like, reacting. Yeah. Yeah. And within the next you know month, he had booked us on this kind of showcase, um, tooth and nail showcase festival thing that he was putting on. And so we went down to, so oh, that was an earth. That was an Irvine, right? I believe. Yes. Yes, it was. Yeah. That's, Oh dude. I, I remember going to that cause it was really weird. That was like, you know, a huge outdoor festival thing. And I remember all of the like quote unquote heavier, scarier bands playing mm-hmm. like you guys and living sacrifice. And I, I totally forgot about that. I remember. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. It was so totally. weird. Very weird. And so we were kind of just thrust into it. Um, but we were, I mean, that was, you know, about as exciting as it ever gets. Right. You know, we were huge tooth and nail fans and growing up, it's like, for the last couple of years prior to that, it's like all my brother and I ever wanted for Christmas was just like, you just go through the tooth and nail catalog and circle like everything, you know? So we were, we were huge fans at that point. And so to be kind of courted by the label at that time was obviously, you know, um, there are very few things in life that surpass that initial, you know, like the first time that you get signed or you get some interest in that regard or the first time you hear yourself on the radio or things like that. It's like, the things that become kind of commonplace after a while and you, uh, you kind of lose the, uh, it loses its luster after a while, but those were the days where everything was just exciting. 
Sure, absolutely. Well, I think you also uh, it, you spoke of experience that was so interesting for m- multiple reasons. Where like the message on your answering machine, where it's like you know you you had first of all your parents being like, "Hey, this record label's calling," and then <laughs> you, you know they didn't know what that was, uh, but then you were excited about it, and they were like, "Oh, I, I, like this is this adult is calling," and it's just like that's such, that's right. a weird juxtaposition of like your parents being let a little bit into the world that you are experimenting with? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And, you know, it's funny is when we were teenagers, you know, I, I played in focal point since I was 15 years old. We ended up getting signed when I was 16. And my parents had to sign a contract for me, obviously, because if you're a minor, you can't sign it yourself. Um, so when we were teenagers, um, and my brother was playing music shortly after I was, obviously, with Training for Utopia, um, we never wanted our parents at our shows. You know what I mean? It was still like right. it was still that um, distance that we that we needed uh, at that point from our parents and that whole thing. So it wasn't until years later, you know, Demon Hunter, um, that we even welcomed our parents to shows. Uh, just you know, being bullheaded kids or whatever. So they never saw us with Training for Utopia. They they kind of knew that we, um, you know, what we were doing and that we had seen a little bit of success, at least to the degree where we were playing shows and traveling, you know, outside of the city to Reno or Los Angeles or wherever to play. And um, so they knew about that, you know, but they, I don't think they really realized, um, you know, when they, when we got that answering machine message and all that kind of stuff, I think it started to really kind of come to light that we were really doing things. <laughs> yeah, no, totally, totally. I, uh, my own personal anecdote with that was like the, uh, I definitely had a, a message on my answering machine from Mike Hartsfield from uh, New Age Records trying to mm-hmm. like, book a show with a band I played in. And it was just one of those things where it's like, you know, I see a note on my door being like, Mike Hartsfield called. And I was like, what? Like, mom, yeah, you don't so, know how important this is to me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know. I, I love that stuff. You know, and uh, unfortunately, you know, like I said, it, as the years go by and things like that become kind of commonplace, you know, you you don't have that same joy that you did when all those things like the first time that all those things happen which you know it's good to look back on them though sure sure i i think because to your point i think there is the there is still that uh, notion where the the excitement still exists it's i think you were just able to i guess temper it or control it in a way that is like you're not just like a fumbling 15 year old fool you're like okay like this person means a lot to me. Their music means a lot to me. Like I need to be a normal human being to this person. Cause then they'll, you know, not think I'm some crazy psychopath or whatever. Of course, Yeah. You kind of learn to navigate the, those, uh, waters a little bit more professionally, I guess. Right. <laughs> yeah, totally. The excitement still exists. It's just like, you know, undercover in ways that, you know, you wouldn't be able to put to words when you were, you know, 14 years old and you have no idea. For sure. <laughs> um, so reflecting on you as a person, I mean, I'm going to gloss over a few things because I know you've, you've spoken about them many, many times. Like I know you were born and raised in Northern California uh, with your brother. Do, do you have any of your siblings? Oh, I don't. Um, Don's the only one. He's four years older than I am. And uh, I was actually born in Southern California. Oh, that's born- right. And then you made your way up. That's right. Yep. I was born in Whittier. And then for the first, I pretty much moved out of Whittier like the first year I was alive. And then the first 10 years of my life uh, were in Bend, Oregon, before Bend was like a vacation destination that it is now. It was a real small town back then, basically like 1980 to 90. And then we moved to, um, to just outside of Sacramento in 1990. 
Was that that was like Walnut Creek, right? It was Elk Grove, so it's okay. about 20, 25 minutes south of Sac. Got it, got it. Um, and so I, I'm gonna I'm gonna guess that the um, you know the brotherly relationship that you had. Uh, I mean, because clearly you guys both you know, went on the path of, you know, being very interested in music and your influences bouncing off of one another. Um, mm-hmm. Did you ever kind of have the sort of uh, adverse brother relationship where it's like, okay, like he's into this, I got to be into this because this is his thing. Or did you guys always kind of navigate those waters together? Music is really what brought us together after, you know, I would say like as high school for me was kind of coming to a close um, and he had been graduated for a while um, I had kind of found punk rock through skateboarding, through friends and neighbors and things like that, um, prior to my brother really going down that road. Um, and so I started playing in bands before he even, you know, picked up a guitar. And then our, our friends and our age gap and all those things kind of slowly started to dissipate and they all kind of started to be the same, you know, like I was playing in focal point, I was playing with a guy who he went to high school with Danny. And, uh, so, you know, there were, there was a lot more crossover at that point and the age gap started to to go away. Um, but there, I would say in our younger years, there was a little bit of that just by virtue of your, your standard, you know, rebellion and, and, and siblinghood and all that kind of stuff. Um, he was very much into, you know, cars and stuff in high school, like VWs and mini trucks, because that was what was cool back then. And, um, you know, airbrushing, like all these very uh, <laughs> dated 90s yeah. Yeah. dated things, you know. Um, and I was I was super into skateboarding. He was into snowboarding. But like at that point, you know, mid high school, they didn't didn't really cross over for us. You know, and we were into the things that were um, remotely the same and that we're all kind of rooted in the same sort of counterculture subculture thing. But it wasn't until I kind of found punk and hardcore and started playing in bands and a couple of years after that, you know, he, he was really involved at least with like being a fan and, and being kind of involved in the scene. And, uh, it wasn't long after I did that where he had kind of learned how to play guitar enough to play in training for utopia. And they started that, um, prior to me being in the band, he started that with a couple of friends, two of which were actually younger than me. So again, like you have this group of friends that is just hardcore kids from, from the neighborhood. And, um, the age gap at that point wasn't such a big deal. So moving into like 18, 19, 20, that's when everything started to just kind of meld. And, um, you know, we were kind of in it together. Sure. Sure. No, that's cool. Cause I, I do think there is that, a uh, fun relationship when you are able to navigate that not only with your friends and your peer group, but then, you know, your own flesh and blood can kind of have that, um, you know, that those influences bouncing back and forth with one another. Cause you know, I'm sure you and many of your friends have the, uh, exact opposite experience where they just look at the, you know, the stuff that you're getting into. It's like, what is this weird yelling stuff? Like I'm not into yeah. it at all, you know? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I had different kind of subgroups of friends throughout high school that were, you know, based on whatever interests I had. You know, I, there was my hardcore friends, um, skateboard friends, and then kind of on the almost on the other side of the fence where I was heavily into graffiti all throughout high school. And so I had kind of graffiti friends who were all these like hip hop guys and um, guys that, you know, scratch records and, and spray painted and stuff. And so I was kind of 
bouncing between groups, um, as it were. And, and so, yeah, it was definitely, you know, they all kind of came around to it and they, they were definitely supportive, even though that wasn't their thing. Um, and actually a lot of the hardcore friends that I had actually ended up making really good friends with those graffiti friends that I had. And, and so, um, it wasn't long before it was all a little bit synonymous. Sure. Totally. Well, especially when you're talking about all of these subcultures and once people recognize the fact that, oh yeah, like even though this person's into a different strain of the thing, it's still all just like weirdo outsider art. Of course. Of <laughs> yeah. course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I know, I, I know much has been spoken about where it's like, oh, your father's a pastor. And like, you know, clearly that was the path where you, you guys were going to go on as far as, you know, your religious <laughs> upbringing and everything. Um, you know, kind of, kind of pinpointing you more as a person where, what did you kind of feel like, uh, you were able to, I, I guess, speak to like your own personal faith. Cause you know, every kid that gets raised within the context of a faith or a church, uh, you know, k- runs into that point where it's like, is this actually what I believe or am right. I going to search this somewhere else? Um, so like, did you have, I'm sure you had that, that thought and that, uh, kind of, uh, approach in the, your, your own personal relationship with your faith. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, it, it's, it wasn't like a, like a major aha moment, you know, like I grew up in the church and, um, you know, I think the, the general rule of thumb is probably that I shouldn't have ended up remaining a believer, to be honest, um, based on, you know, people that I've heard grew up in the church or grew up with pastors or preachers as dads and, um, family members of mine that kind of grew up in similar, similar situation. Um, you know, I, I think that the odds are that I probably shouldn't have stayed this way. Um, but I think my parents kind of struck a pretty good balance of, um, instilling that stuff in us, but also not beating us over the head with it and also being just genuinely cool people. Um, and so they're, uh, what they kind of showed us um, was resonated with me, especially as I got kind of into adulthood. Um, I, I started seeing a lot of friends kind of um, bow out of it and things like that uh, by virtue of usually by virtue of them being bummed out at the church or at some version of judgment that they felt from the greater, you know, um, quote unquote Christian world especially guys in bands, you know, um, it's a very scrutinizing, um, scene and it can, you kind of have to, um, you have to have a lot of patience, um, because there is that legalistic side of it that is ever present and, um, is difficult to put up with year after year. Um, and so, you know, I have just, it's it's more of a natural thing for me to see that as failed people and not a failed faith um, and not a I, I don't see that as failure in my God I see that as failure in people and so I've always been able to kind of separate those two things and the older I get the more and more that my worldview um, whether it re- relates to hope um, or just you know what I feel like creation is and, uh, should be. And, um, all of those sorts of things, I, it just rings more and more true, uh, to me and more and more sensible. The things that the, the big things in life that are very gray, um, feel like they have 
answers, at least things that I can um, that I can cling to as a hope. And so I, I like that aspect of it. Sure, absolutely. Sure. No, it's I, I appreciate you walking me through that because I definitely think that there, like you said, there is this real. Um, you know, a dividing line where it's like, <laughs> especially within the context of you playing out in a band and then, you know, having your feet firmly planted within, it's like, even if you play a show with a Christian band and you are not a, a Christian, like I'll never forget. I remember, I'm, I know you remember this band, but uh, I played a show with that band born blind at chain uh-huh. reaction. And like, I never had been questioned really in the past for like any of my, you know, like lyrics or anything. I didn't like swear at myself and in, in my band or anything, but like sure. I had a person like ask me like, Hey, could, uh, could I, could I look at your lyrics like at the show? And it was one of those <laughs> things where it's like, and I know that's happened to you probably plenty of times. And it's like, <laughs> Oh yeah. Or like you can't spit on stage. Like, I remember hearing, you know, stories about, you know, MXPX getting criticized for spitting on stage. And it's like, yeah. oh, my gosh, this is insane, you know? So I, yeah. but I, I appreciate you walking me through that. Sure. I mean, you know, it's like there's a it's like two pronged for me. I, I subscribe to uh, like the big picture stuff as it pertains to my spirituality and eternal life and a, a Christ and things like that. Um where I kind of bow out or fight against is the the more legalistic side of those things, the, the, the side that asks us not to be people that are flawed and normal. Um, and so that is something that Demon Hunter has always kind of been for me, is something that on one hand may serve to kind of pump up like-minded people, but on the other hand may also serve to kind of poke at that bubble where those more legalistic people reside. Listen up. You probably have heard Sirius XM before, right? Like just maybe, maybe. But did you know they offer the deepest variety of commercial free music for every genre and every mood? And not only that, but they have a ton of awesome news shows, biggest names in talk, entertainment and comedy. So you think you're like, you know what? Yeah, yeah, I've heard of that. It's that thing they give you occasionally inside your car. But did you know that you can listen to it outside the car. Right now, you can get your first three months of Sirius XM outside the car for just $1. Just go to SiriusXM.com slash words to see the offer details and to subscribe. And for $1, you can listen to Sirius XM on your phone, at home, and online. So anywhere you are, any time of the day, you can hear your favorite songs or discover new ones. So please go to SiriusXM, S-I-R-I-U-S-X-M.com slash words and get your first three months of SiriusXM outside the car for $1. See the offer details and the offer is only available to new SiriusXM streaming subscribers. SiriusXM, no car required. I love this service. I've been playing around with it and I'm just, I, I can't recommend it enough. Okay, SiriusXM, dive in. Clearly, throughout your your process of kind of you know developing who you are and and you know the the subcultures that you're interested in from you know graffiti and punk and hardcore and everything, it sounds like the lane that you kind of always lived in was like, yo, I like art, like uh, you know, like you weren't going to be, um, you know, you weren't. I'm sure in some respects you were raised to be kind of a, a pastor's kid, but like that wasn't the path for you, or like you know being a sports dude wasn't a path for you. Um, was that always kind of like, yeah, I'm, this is the world I feel comfortable with. Yeah, you know, early, early, it was like baseball was a big thing for my brother and I, um, baseball card collecting and all that kind of stuff. And like that, that for me was a very short lived thing. I got hit in the eye with a baseball and had to go to the emergency room. And I was like, all right, I'm done. And that was, like, <laughs> that was, was my like, career. <laughs> yeah, my career is done. So I was like 10 years old at that point. And, you know, uh, I very quickly found skateboarding. Um, we had a skateboard growing up uh, that was kind of a hand me down from a cousin. 
And I was, you know, I was attracted to that world, to Thrasher magazine, like all the stuff that kind of went with it. Um, and to me, that was really the catalyst for everything that followed. Um, I can trace that back to the, the art on skateboard decks by Jim Phillips and BC Johnson. Like that is the art that resonated with me the most and still does today. Um, and then by way of Thrasher magazine, you know, you see like these independent record label ads and you see pushead artwork and, uh, then you buy skate videos and you hear all these punk bands and hardcore bands that you've never heard. And even some classic rock stuff. And, um, it just, that world completely opened my eyes to like a counterculture that me as a suburbanite white kid, you know, uh, with not a lot around me in terms of like a big city or culture, it gave me something to kind of like feel like was my own was like in my pocket, you know? And, uh, so that was really major for me. And I, I point basically everything back to skateboarding and, and the culture that surrounds skateboarding as kind of like the beginning of my infatuation with like any sort of sub or counterculture lifestyle. Sure. That was your diving board into the, uh, the weird pool that we all swim in. Well, not, yes. not we all do, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, the, the thing that I find interesting about you and your brother, just like as a, you know, casual observer and having, you know, many mutual friends together existing in the scene that we do, um, you guys have always straight up struck me as like very obsessive people about the things that you're into. Um, and in ways that I, I myself as an only child identify with, but it's interesting Mm -hmm. because usually that exists kind of, you know, not exclusively with only children, but, um, I, I just, I don't know. I see it's like both of you guys getting so into stuff and then, um, you know, being, being able to, uh, immerse yourself in these worlds is really, um, you know, it, I just find it interesting. I don't know if you've reflected on that at all, but something I've observed. Sure. I mean, part of, part of growing up uh, as a pastor's kid and, and growing up as a kid, uh, who in that regard, isn't really like, that's not a cool scene. You know what I mean? Like yeah. there had <laughs> there had to be a way to make it cool if I was going to feel comfortable subscribing to it, to be honest, like, especially as a teenage kid. So when I heard the music of, you know, bands, you know, that would finally start to resonate with me on, on a level, um, you know, Christian bands, especially early on were kind of a joke in terms of, um, where they kind of fit into the greater, the greater puzzle of music, you know, it was, the well was very shallow and most of it was super derivative and not very interesting and kind of Bible-y. And so when these bands started popping up that actually sounded good and um, were closer to the kind of stuff that I was into outside of the Christian world, I mean, that was super major for me. Um, And I think that just the the synonymous nature of being an outsider, like you said, counterculture, whether that's through Christianity or whether that's punk rock or straight edge, um, you know, I was comfortable kind of living in that world. And I wanted, I wanted basically to kind of create my own little world within my suburb, you know what I mean? Like, um, and that for me was decidedly against the grain um, and so those, those sorts of things to me kind of run synonymous. Like there is a punk rock nature. If you ask me to, to people of faith, you know, especially in this day and age, it's not, it's still not cool, you know? Um, and I know that. And 
I feel like it's kind of my job to do whatever I can to make kids who are growing up right now feel like it is cool, you know, because there were a handful of bands when I grew up that, that did that for me. Um, and it was hugely instr- instrumental in, in my life. No, totally. Yeah. It, it, you, and I think it, it speaks to that obsessive nature where it's like once you, um, not everybody goes as deep down the rabbit hole, um, as people like, you know, you and I have, but like it, it speaks to that thing that you get into it. It's like, no, I got it. Like there is no shortage of things that I can right. pay attention to. So like just turn on the, you know, turn on the faucet and let me just drink until like my stomach is absolutely distended and full, you know? Yeah, totally. And I realized I kind of half answered your question, but no, it's yeah, fine. I mean, be, you know, getting, getting obsessed with something like that is, is partly I think to do with, you know, um, again, just like loving that counterculture thing and that subculture thing and just what it is to like pre-internet discover something. Um, that was obviously awesome. And when you, when you start doing that, you know, via zines or catalogs or Thrasher magazine or whatever it is, you know, again, like you said, it just kind of opens up and you realize how much stuff is out there and how many people across the nation and the world are like you and doing things like you and doing the kind of stuff that you want to hear and see. Um, and I think also compounded by the fact that I grew up really poor, um, you know, when I when I became an adult and was making money for myself and um, things like that, you know, I I'd go back and collect all this stuff that I couldn't afford as a kid. You know, all the skateboards I wanted, all the shoes that I wanted, like all the all the things that like, you know, don't at the end of the day, don't really amount to much. But the things that were like I see as as very instrumental and in kind of shaping who I was as an artist um, I have now the luxury of kind of going back and being like, I'm an adult. I can, I can, I can buy that, if I want, you know? <laughs> and so that's a very slippery slope, obviously, if, if you love a lot of things, you know, for me, it's like the, it spans far into, you know, clothing, artwork, um, you know, music. So it, there's a lot of categories that I'm really obsessed with. And obviously there's a lot of stuff within each of those categories to keep me really busy. Yeah. You, you definitely have to pick your spots once you get to a certain age. It's like, Oh dude, I can't, I can't do all of this. Like, oh I man, I know. Like Depeche Mode just started releasing all those singles of every record they've ever done on vinyl. And it's like, Oh, that's my favorite band, but that is such a slippery slope because they have like a hundred singles. <laughs> totally. So, I'm not about to spend like 10 K on, you know, Depeche Mode singles. So, um, yeah, yeah but that's the kind of thing that, that, you have to, in, my, in my nature to do totally and you, you have to like you have that conversation in your head where it's just like oh man whereas like most normal people would be like yeah i would never do that and you're like well no you have to consider that though <laughs> of course of course yeah <laughs> um the uh you know considering you were bringing home such uh you know weird influences and all of these things that you know your parents probably had uh little to no understanding about um but like you said they gave you the space in which to explore these things um was there, do you remember a time where they were like, uh, concerned, you know, where they were like, all right, you know, Ryan, um, you know, we let you do your thing, but like, you know, what is this playing in bands? It's yelling and stuff. Like, you know, when do you feel, or if there was any point where you felt like they were, um, not concerned, like overly concerned, but you know, were expressing more than like, well, I don't know. I don't know, Ryan, this seems weird. Well, yeah. I mean, there were definitely growing pains, um, with, the style of music that we were into, um, the, the cultures at large. Uh, I remember my brother 
was luckily he was the first person to go get a tattoo so he was kind of the guinea pig in that <laughs> regard and uh, <laughs> they reacted to that one. Oh my gosh so my mom yeah my mom lost it she called the better business bureau all this even though he was 18 you know like she just she was very um you know concerned about whether or not it was a clean place and all this stuff and you know like little by little i started getting them and she would kind of roll her eyes and sigh and <laughs> yeah you know and and then you know fast forward to today they're like i could show up with like a tattoo on my face and she might even not even notice you know like um they've come a long way for sure and in regards to music there were definitely things that like we quote unquote could not have um I would change into Metallica shirts and Megadeth shirts when I got to school, you know, cause I couldn't wear that kind of stuff. Um, and you know, I would keep Slayer CDs and Rage Against the Machine CDs nicely tucked away, um, where they couldn't find them. And, uh, I, I knew that there was definitely a line, um, in terms of the style of music itself. I don't remember there being a huge, um, issue with that. I know they didn't really understand it or get it at the, at the beginning, but um, I think that to them, if we were good kids, you know, and if we weren't rebelling in the very obvious rebellion ways, or at least not not to the degree where we were getting in lots of trouble, um, I think they were less concerned with the style of music that we were playing or the kind of stuff that we were interested in. Um, I think uh, to give them credit, I think that um, they were able to see that we were doing something, we were creating something, we were making something, we were staying busy with it, and we were devoted to it, and it, it wasn't getting us in a lot of trouble. Um, and they also knew kind of about our, um, you know, straight edge and things like that, which um, I, I can't help but imagine that they were at least a little bit psyched on that when we were in high school, you know, I would X up when I would go to school. So I was very much into it. Um, and at that age, I think that definitely kind of draws a line in the sand between you and like the partying jocks or, or whatnot. And yeah. so I think they, they probably were kind of stoked at that. You know, I think they probably would have rather it just been by virtue of being a Christian, but um, yeah. I, I don't think they were going to, to complain too much about it. Um, so to them, it was always more about who we were as individuals. Um, and that's, you know, over the years, that's kind of become much more apparent with everything we do is that um, they how we look and what we're into and, and that all that kind of stuff is means nothing to them anymore. Um, beyond who we are as, as individuals. Totally, totally. Two, uh, two minor threads I want to pick out in there. So you, uh, you X'd up going to school, which is definitely an experience that I did as well. But the <laughs> important question, did you X up both hands or just one hand? Both. Okay. See, my, yeah, this, earth practice style. <laughs> so th- this was, this was my kid logic on this. I, uh, you know, Xing up both hands was like what you do at shows clearly. And like you mentioned earth right. crisis. Right. Uh, so a casual straight edge. So just like, you know, your daily walking around straight edge was, sure. one, yeah, was, yeah. was one hand. So, 
So that, <laughs> that that's sensible. I get it. it but yeah. the fact the fact that I like wrapped my head around that, and I was like, oh yes, yeah, so I'm just going to wear one X at my small private Lutheran high school. It's like, what the hell was I thinking? But yeah, still, <laughs> yeah, ditto. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. Uh, but to I, I always encountered that that notion of what you were talking about, where you had your, um, you know, your parents like didn't completely understand, but then once you you know you kind of walk them through, you know, just the basic ideas of like, oh, this is what straight edge and this you know playing in bands and stuff like that and like i'm sure you encountered many peers and friends that had you know continual troubles with their parents because they were you know like not living up to their end of the bargain or whatever and in my head i was always like why don't you make this like a little bit easier on yourself and like just you know like do some of the stuff that they say (laughs) like it doesn't make any sense right right yeah i mean most of my friends had a lot longer leash than i did um I, for the most part, my childhood neighborhood friends were not Christian. Their parents weren't. Um, and that's not to say that's the only version or, you know, method of where, by which rules or regulations or things come by. But uh, all that to say, they they all had quite a, quite a bit more freedom than I did in, in terms of just kind of those standard, like, how late you're going to stay out, like whose houses you're going to go to, what kind of stuff you're going to wear, what kind of stuff you're going to listen to, watch on TV. Um, so most of my friends really didn't have that same sort of um, the same sort of like ramifications that I did with that stuff. Um, it was more like they all knew kind of that I was the one that would need to be home earlier, or you know, <laughs> yeah. I was the one that you know, wasn't going to really mess around with stuff by virtue of being worried I'd get caught for certain things or whatever. So, sure. Uh, yeah. For the most part, like I didn't have a ton of friends that, um, really had the same sort of story that I did. Sure. Sure. Well, yeah. Every, once, once, uh, you or your brother came around, everyone's like, Oh dude, you guys, we got to chill out. These are like the pastor's kids. Like, you know, just kidding. Yeah, totally. I, I mean, I would go, I would go like, uh, graffiti with, friends and we would go to like a train yard and you know my friends were awesome uh but they all knew that that if i got in trouble it would be a big deal um and so if there was ever any kind of heat like if we ever got chased out of the train yard by cops or anything like that they would let me run and they would kind of like hold off anyone that would that would come and and mess with us or whatever so that's perfect um, yeah, yeah. It was very, very understood that if Ryan gets caught, like there's no coming back from this. Right. Um, there's, so. Yeah. A, 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 uh, you know, hail, hail fire <laughs> storm yeah. would come your direction. Yeah, that yeah, makes, exactly. That makes total sense. Um, so, you know, as you started to, you know, get out and, you know, play shows, you know, with focal, like, or was focal point, like literally the first band you played in, or you probably had to play in some terrible band before that. Right. Yeah, I was in a band called Opposed. Okay. Um, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't, I don't mean to categorize your prior band as being terrible, but I'm just assuming it's, <laughs> it's your, it's your high school band. It probably we were is. amazing. Okay. <laughs> um, the the first like band that ever played any shows would have been Opposed. I had a bunch of like bands that were basically just you know me and friends drawing logos on paper, but the first band that actually like you know recorded on uh, a ghetto blaster and sold tapes at my school. Um, actually that would have been a band called forklift, uh, which was like a, wow. Was, that is an like, amazing name, dude. <laughs> it was one of those bands that it was at the age where you didn't really know how to 
converge all of the, th- the kinds of styles of music that you were into. So you kind of decided to just kind of play all of them. Of course. Uh, and so, yeah, that would have been like ninth grade. And it was everything from like, you know, pop punk to helmet sounding stuff and everything in between. And so we recorded like a, a cassette tape again on a ghetto blaster outside the practice room. And sure. um, we sold probably 20 or 30 of them at high school. Um, and then, yeah, once things started getting a little more serious, I met my brother's friend, Danny. Um, he was a really good guitar player had a lot of pro gear and stuff like that. Um, that's when we kind of started opposed and that I believe we had one show that we actually played. Um, and then opposed kind of just morphed into focal point. Um, so that was, that was almost like the early earliest inception of focal point was this thing opposed. Got uh, but when we decided to get even serious, more serious, we'd cut, we changed the name and things like that. So, um, yeah, that was the very, very beginning. Got it. Got it. Um, and so once you started to play out and play shows and, you know, even do the, the limited amount of touring that you did, you know, and you did more with, with training for utopia, um, <laughs> like how, what was your relationship with touring? Did you enjoy it? Was it something that you had to grow to like? Um, it was very, back then it was very different. Um, I remember, I mean, everything about it was different, you know, like when it's just fly by night and you're, you know, you're calling promoters from a landline, um, you know, three, four months ahead booking shows. And then as far as you know, they're booked and you're just going to show up, you know, like I, I remember seeing that, that change in like, what it means to be like a total DIY nineties, um, musician to what the real world looks like in terms of, you know, when, when you're booking shows now, you, there's like a lot of communication between when you book it and when you get there and there's the load in time and all this, you know, there's, there's all this stuff that comes with it now that obviously makes it more professional and, and, and um, makes more sense. But back then it was just, it just seemed so, I mean, DIY is the only way to put it, you know, like everyone was just kind of winging it. Um, and it was fun in that regard. It was definitely not the sort of thing where we could expect to play in front of very many people. So I don't necessarily remember being bummed out by that fact, but you know, focal point toured one summer, uh, our only tour, and we had a couple of great crowds, but then there were probably five or seven shows where we played in front of three, four people. Sure. Um, and you know, it was probably a bummer to me back then. I don't remember exactly, but, um, it was always pretty sweet though, because I was, you know, I was 17 and I was on the road and, um, we were doing it, you know? So there was still like a, a silver lining to all of it. But over the years, um, as it became more of like a, I don't know. It starts to resemble a job. You know what I mean? Not, not that it ever really fully does feel that way, but it just, um, it becomes a routine. It's a routine. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the, just the amount of commitment and, and the things that are expected kind of all those things start to increase, you know, and especially being in a band like demon hunter, you know, there's all these things to, to worry about or think about. Um, 
I've always had a bit of a love-hate thing with touring. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that's why we've done it so infrequently. I think that's more just uh, um, because of the sorts of jobs that we've had um, outside of the band and the fact that we've kind of had our cake and have been eating it too since we started the band. Um, We have the design careers that are very much, you know, for my brother, it was kind of, that was his first love. And for me, it was a very close second love. And so it was hard to really complain about what we did at home and the sort of lives that we led at home. And so touring was a nice break and a nice vacation and a good excuse to hang out with friends and hang out with the band and be able to play shows live and legitimize the band and the records and things like that. But it was never like, there was never an obligation that we felt to be doing it. Um, And so being that our home life was always very, um, we were always very busy and we were grinding and we were really building a business being on the road always felt like mostly like a waste of our time. And I don't mean that from like when we were playing, uh, that was, that was great. And that was, um, that was amazing. But when we weren't playing, there really wasn't much of a way for us to be, you know, designing or, or be doing any of that work that we were doing at home. And so it was kind of frustrating, you know, um, having to kind of switch one off and switch one on. And then the one that when you're, when you're touring, when that switches on your ability to do anything else, even if you kind of try to in the van, in the van or the bus or whatever, it just quickly becomes apparent that you're not really able to. And so, it seems like a lot of downtime that you can't really do much with when you're on tour. And that was really, that was and is really hard for me when we're out for long periods of time. Sure. No, I appreciate you walking me through that. Cause I, I you know, frankly, I, I knew I was going to elicit that sort of response because it does, um, y- y- you, you have this, you know, evolving relationship when you are um yeah not only when you get older and have perspective but that idea that um you know tour is only this one static thing and it doesn't uh it's never going to change your experience will change with it as far as like maybe becoming more comfortable and traveling in buses as opposed to vans or whatever but (laughs) at the at the same time the core of it doesn't change it's it's hurry up and wait all right now we load it in now we got like seven hours before we play or whatever right totally and it's also sort of an alternate reality i mean i think that's why a lot of guys who are in you know full-time touring bands kind of live this completely different life you know and it's why they i think they struggle a lot with what's going on back at home you know i mean it's not an it's certainly not an easy life for anyone who's married or who has kids and um you know most people who are out on the road don't even know what day it is you know because every day kind of bleeds together like there are no weekends i mean i guess weekends just mean some of the shows might be bigger right (laughs) yeah they're still doing the same thing every day you know and um it just doesn't really resemble real life and luckily i haven't had enough of it to really let it reach that point to where I, it becomes more natural for me than regular life. It's always for me existed as, as a small part of my normal life. And so I feel like I've been able to kind of compartmentalize it in a healthier way. And honestly, I think that the only reason demon hunter is still playing, you know, 18 years later is because we haven't done that. We haven't really grinded on the road we haven't gotten sick of each other. Um, 
we haven't gotten sick of doing it, you know. So I think it's actually really worked to our benefit um, when I look back. But I do love it in short in short runs and small doses. I do still really dig it. Um, I love going out and meeting fans, and I love being able to play new material. And um, I still love the feeling of going out on stage. And so I, I feel like I'll always want that to be a part of my life. But I have no... Um, uh, there's not a part of me that really wants for that to kind of start to overshadow the other things in my life. Sure, yeah, to be the only thing, yeah, for sure. In a world where everyone is confined to their homes, society begins its largest bin watch to date. In the hallowed library of Hulu, or perhaps on a shelf of DVDs you haven't looked at in a decade, is a show that perfectly encapsulates life in the early aughts and launched a friendship that would inspire millions. Hi, I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. In 2001, we starred in Scrubs, a sitcom that revealed a glimpse of what it was like to survive a medical internship. As Turk and JD, we explored guy love. Nearly 20 years later, a lot has changed. We're not supermen, but we're still best friends. Eh. Given the mandatory lockdown, there's no better time to relive the series that brought us together in the first place. And we're doing it with a podcast. That's right, people. We're going to bring friends and crew members and fellow cast members and writers. And and guess what? We're going to even invite some of you to call into the podcast and ask all the questions you want of the entire Sacred Heart staff. Join us for Fake Doctors Real Friends on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Um. You know, in, in full transparency, uh, I, I I've never been a fan of Demon Hunter. Um, no 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 shot against the, that art, but <laughs> but the the thing that I uh, was really really and I, I've always respected the work that you guys have done, and I think it's you know there there's so many things that I identify with, and the thing that really really brought it home to me because I always you know like I would continually check out your records, and be like okay like you know maybe this one I like a little bit more. It's like well, it's it's okay, but sure. the 45 day documentary that you did with uh, our mutual friend Kale. Uh, I thought it was probably like that, that to me is like almost essential viewing for people that play in bands and for people that, you know, have that experience of creating art because, um, it was such a, you know, affecting portrait of the way that, um, you know, your, your band and your art that you put out there is so deeply affecting to people and in a very, um, stripped away, non-egotistical manner, and like I, I, I know this is weird. Where I, like I give you a backhanded comp, well, not even a backhanded comp, <laughs> but I'm just trying to back into the idea of just like this. You know, this really is an interesting portrait to the fact of like how um, impactful art can be to people, um, and even me as a non-fan of your band can watch sure. this and reflect it and be like, wow, that's a that's a cool thing. Um, I have to believe that in some fashion that was kind of the, the feeling or um, message you were trying to get across with that DVD or am I just reading too much into it? Well, I mean, one thing became pretty apparent early on with the band and that is that the band was resonating with people um, on a really, really deep emotional, spiritual, you know, mental level um, to a degree that we never really planned for or foresaw. And so when it became, 
time to kind of do that tour, which we know was we knew at the time it was going to be a big deal. We were kind of coming off the heels of a, of a big release for us. It was a really great touring lineup. <clears throat> it was going to be the longest tour that we had done thus far. Um, you know, production was at an all time high. All those sorts of things. We started batting around the idea of doing a, a feature of sorts. Um, and we knew there want, we wanted it to have some sort of you know live music component to it, but the thing that kind of ringed the most true for us that we felt like would be um, more of our unique perspective and something that we could show that maybe not every other band could show was just how deeply um, entrenched our fans were in the the band and and whatever sort of um life that took in in their own lives and so what we wanted to do is essentially show you know what touring life is like um but then interspersed with these stories of fans um across the nation who have these kind of interesting or sometimes sad or sometimes enlightening stories that um, somehow kind of cross paths with the band or cross over into the band. Um, and it, you know, it, our fans have always been just a major like life force of the band. And I know that pretty much every band could say that that's had any success, obviously. But um, for us, it was just unlike anything that we ever imagined we would get, you know, I've, I've gotten, correspondence, you know, even in Focal Point and Training for Utopia from plenty of people, you know, but the sheer volume um, of of correspondence that we've got since being in Demon Hunter and the kinds of things that we would hear and um, just the level of, um, of love that we would get from our fans was just something that we like I said, we weren't ready for, but then once we realized what we had, we had to kind of show that. Got it. Got it. And so the, the, yeah, it, it became apparent over time as you were putting this footage together that, I mean, you know, the, the crowd and fan support, I mean, it, you know, one uh, playing devil's advocate would be like, well, of course, like fans are going to like the band. Like, but, uh, you know, I, I'm speaking it from a fact that it's like, it just, um, I think it just does a really good job, uh, you know, summarizing and synopsizing um, not only the specific experience that people have with the art that you create, but just kind of the uh, how people interact with art that decide to like pour all of themselves into it, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's to me when I when I think about it and try to um, try to understand or explain like how how deep that interaction or that, that level of um, resonance is with fans. When I think about some of the things that have been told to us or some of the things that have been done um, by our fans, you know, quote unquote, because of us or whatever, I sometimes, you know, um, I sometimes think that for a band our size, which we're not Metallica, um, I feel like we have a, a crazier level than than some of our peers of what our fans 
are are kind of doing in the name of of their fanship for for Demon Hunter. I I feel like I'd be pretty hard pressed to find you know a similar sized band that has lyrics on gravestones or uh, has been married to songs or has proposed to songs or has um, you know there's soldiers wearing our patches there are um, you know walls in Iraq with our logo spray painted on them there are like there are kids named Hunter because of our band you know there there's this crazy um, level of the the type of things that our our fans do because they love the band so much that I really honestly don't know if anyone shy of like a really large band would would kind of see these types of things. Totally, no, it's it's really really cool, and I, I like I, I was thankful that you guys documented that and put that together because uh, yeah, I just think it's a really uh, enlightening take on just yeah, like I said, how people interact not only with your band but just art in general. Yeah. Um, and kind of on that same topic where, you know, clearly you, uh, you know, with all of the design work you've done, you know, from Asterix, you know, or Asterix, I should say, <laughs> up, mm-hmm. up to the work that you do now, um, you know, clearly there's this collision between art and commerce and, you know, coming from the sort of DIY um, culture that we exist in, there's always been that, um, you know, reticence to be like, okay, like once you make a living off your art, it changes. Like there's that whole fundamental argument that happens. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you, how, I guess, how have you kind of uh, navigated that? Because clearly, you know, you don't have a problem making money off of the art that you create with corporate clients and stuff like that. Like there's sure. no misgivings as far as that's concerned. Um, but I'm sure you had to have that kind of, um, you know, uh, evolving movement towards the idea of like, okay, this is what I'm comfortable with, but I have considered, you know, these moving elements or whatever. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's, that's, uh, I, I know, I know it's not an easy question to like summarize <laughs> not, per se, not. but yeah. Um, I mean, I've certainly thought about it before. Um, it's not something that I think or talk about a lot. So, um, you know, I think that it's, there's obviously certain things that as an artist you feel comfortable doing or uncomfortable doing. And, um, I've tried to, hold on to those sorts of beliefs and ideals as I've gone. Um, you know, I, I can't necessarily say that I would do design work for anyone. Obviously, um, there are plenty of companies that I would be pretty vehemently against doing work for, um, just my own kind of, you know, there's a there's a bit of punk rock still left within the commerce of of design for me um you know granted i do a lot of work for larger corporate clients um but for me it's it's never really been punk rock was never that for me do you know what i mean um the the no effects punk rock is not necessarily like the exact same brand that i subscribe to um, so it's, it's never been about, you know, the entirety of, of the corporate or commercial landscape. I'm, I don't throw that all out. Um, it's more about, are there things that, you know, on a smaller scale, are there things that, um, 
you know, I would where places where I would draw the line, like definitely. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's just honestly for me, it's just been a case by case thing, you know, with the band, it's like, it is what it is. You know, like I said, we, you know, it's not necessarily the type of thing where I could live off of, you know, at this point in my life solely. So, I mean, between the design and the band, like I, I live comfortably and that's great. Um, but I'm not flush all the time. Like I don't not worry about, you know, my bank account and paychecks and things like that. So I still feel like a working class guy. Um, and I still feel like there's plenty of working class punk mentality kind of left to what I'm doing at this point. You know, I, I certainly haven't arrived in that regard to the degree where I'm, yeah, you're you know, sitting uh, on a pile of money. You're like, what? Exactly. Fine, dude. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I so, I mean, I, I cash the target check. I don't need to worry about anything ever. Yeah. Right. And uh, to be clear, most of those big jobs are my brother um, who, you know, he's the one who's doing design full time. And so when you're doing commercial art, you're doing design as communication for other people. If you're not willing to do it for some of those larger companies, life's going to get pretty hard. Uh, and so unless you have big issues with certain companies uh, or entities, um, there's really no reason why uh, you would say no to any of those things. Yeah, totally. And especially, too, where the notion that I think because our subculture has existed now for, you know, 30 plus years, I'm speaking in broad terms like the idea of, you know, punk and hardcore. Um, sure. Now the fact that all of this uh, in, uh, underground influence, now people are of the age where they are influencing pop culture as a whole and being sure. like bringing all of these things that would never, ever have appeared on people's radars, not only from you know, like skateboarding, tattooing, all this stuff that has progressed so far. And it's like, well, yeah, that's just because, you know, people that are creative and are hustlers are the ones that are creating the stuff that you're looking at. And so, yeah, I, I, I think it's, of course, know, well, it's funny you say that because a lot of the, a lot of the jobs that we've gotten from a lot of these big clients over the years have been from some punk or hardcore kid that worked at that, at that company. You know what I mean? That was either familiar with the, the band or with the company by virtue of the album packaging that we've done. Um, and so there are basically old hardcore kids like all throughout these industries now working at Nike and Lego and Target. And honestly, a lot of the people that we deal with at these companies are old hardcore kids. And so that if it's any consolation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. It's like, dude, it, basically you're just giving you're, you're given a larger sandbox to play in than, you know, just our, our, our world of, you know, zines and distros and stuff like that. Of course. Yeah. And it's nice to keep one foot in that. And I still love doing album packaging and I'll, I do it for quite a bit less than I work for corporate clients for, you know, and I, I, I would have it no other way. Um, but in order to make ends meet, it's nice to not be so um, so closed off to some of the some of the bigger projects. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, one more thing before I, I kind of let you go because I could punish you probably for another hour, but I won't. Oh, no um, worries. <laughs> the um, you know now that you uh, you know your your father. Do you have one or two children? 
I have one. You have one. Okay. Little girls four. Okay. Um, and so, you know, that profoundly changes people's lives, um, not only in the way that they look at themselves, but look at the world in general. And I always find it interesting people that have come up in our subculture and then are now parents and then have this kind of reflexive, uh, idea of just like, okay, well, you know, I was the person who pushed against a lot of these things that were presented to me and how am I going to present, you know, how am I going to present the world to my child? Um, not in like this strategic cold manner, but, um, you know, I'm sure that there has been reflective moments you've had as a, as a father and, you know, rearing a child, um, that you've kind of reflected on, uh, are, are are those things that you have kind of thought about or, or is that just something you're kind of instinctually sort of like, I guess, hard baked in you that you're, uh, you're reacting that way? Yeah. I mean, obviously there are a lot of thoughts, um, in that whole arena when you become a parent that, um, that kind of swim around in your subconscious at least. Um, you know, I, I certainly don't think that my daughter will be raised anything like I was raised. Um, there'll be a lot of, a lot of things for her that were very different than, than how they were for me. Um, you know, I'm, we're trying our best to raise her on really good music, you know, like that's a big part of, uh, of something for both my wife and I that like, you know, I didn't have when I was a kid, um, in terms of seeing all the different types of music available and all sorts of cultures through that. And, um, you know, I'm selfishly trying to, um, push her into skateboarding and, comic books and cool movies and things like that. And, you know, I, I would love for her to grow up kind of being, uh, you know, decidedly, uh, comfortably outsider. Um, and so it's kind of like time will only tell, you know, I, the, the rule of thumb is that she's going to do something completely, um, yeah, different <laughs> opposite of what, you know, me or her mom is into. And so that's a little bit scary. Although, you know, if she gets into sports or whatever, if that's something that's stokes her out, like I'm all for it. Um, and I, you know, by, by no means want her, you know, want to live, um, through her in any, in any way. But I, you know, again, selfishly, I would love to kind of provide a, a world for her that I've, you know, been entrenched in for a long time and have a lot of experience in. And, you know, if she ends up being the kind of kid that likes going to shows, it's like dad can get you into a lot of shows probably for free. You yeah, know? totally. Or, or like, you know, Comic-Con and like all that type of stuff that would be really fun to do. It's like, you know, I, I've been so involved in that world so much, like I, I could be a, you know, a well of knowledge in that regard. So that kind of thing does excite me. But as a parent, you gotta you gotta be careful how hard or how hard you push in that direction. Because again, like there's going to be this natural inclination to to do something different. And in some ways, I kind of hope there is. You know, I hope that she's just into something uh, wholeheartedly. But um, my biggest fear, I think, for her is a fear of a lack of want. Um, when I was a kid, like I said, I was I grew up pretty poor. And I grew up in like a, you know, a boring suburban neighborhood. And I think that that was, that had everything to do with 
the type of things that I got into and the type of things that really shaped me. And it really gave me a drive and a want to have more and to do different and to get out. Um, and honestly, my, my biggest fear for her is that she won't want, certainly not financially, um, nearly as much as I did as a kid. And I think that that's one of the things that, you know, add to that social media and et cetera, et cetera, that is to me plaguing the, uh, the youth of, the, of today. But um, I think a lack of want um, is a real detriment, unfortunately. Uh, the, the pre-internet era where you could kind of feel like you discovered something and um, really take ownership of it because of that fact, because you felt like you had to kind of do some work to find out about it or to get there. Um, is gone. And so that is what my biggest concern is. It's just a, a lack of one. It's the same concern I would have for any kid today is that there's just everything is available. Everything is accessible. And I think that that's, that's not good. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's nice for us adults that kind of lived in that world and know how to do with or without it. Um, it's really scary for people that don't know what to do without it. And so that, that's my fear. Sure. Sure. Yeah. They're definitely, it's like everybody is searching for the, uh, proverbial record store guru where it's like, you know, and, and you can place that on every single medium that we have now. It's like, you need the tastemaker, you need the person that's like escorting you through this thing. And I think that's like, you know, that's what people are leaning on of a younger generation where it's just like, oh yeah, like I need to have this person like telling me the navigation points. Um, because yeah, otherwise, you know, you're left adrift with everything and you don't know, like there's nothing you can like latch onto and be passionate about because everything right. is there. Yeah. I you, can, you can be so flippant about the things that you are interested in because it's the oversaturation of information and like all of those things is just everywhere. So you could be super into something for a while, but it didn't take you much effort to get there. So you can just kind of like leave it by the wayside at a certain point, you know, like there was a pride in finding out about things and feeling like you kind of had one over on the rest of society because you, you found something that was niche and was interesting and was counterculture or whatever. And now that stuff is just right there on the surface for the picking for anyone. And so, um, it just doesn't garner the same sort of pride in yourself and the same sort of um, love and, and attachment to something that there once was. That's true. Yeah, you can filter through things a lot uh, quicker and easier um, in ways that you know it wasn't capable before. Um, right. And I promise, this last thing was uh, you know c kind of dovetailing into that the fact that you know you you personally have, you know, uh, dove off social media. Um, I mean, for, I, I don't know if this was like an intentional thing or you're just like, Oh yeah, I just, I just don't care about it anymore. Um, yeah. I, I, I'm going to guess that's a deliberate decision of yours to be like, yes, I need to be more connected with the, you know, the people that are right in front of me as opposed to the screen. Um, how ha, have you felt like, I mean, clearly you felt good about it cause you've stayed off of it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah. T tell me about that experience. Uh, it's tempting at times, but it's just a huge time waster. Um, it It's, man, I could go. <laughs> You're like, I could go for another hour on this. Oh, easily. <laughs> I mean, for all the, for all the pros um, or positive things that 
let's just say, let's just call it the internet, um, has brought us, I think it is the most destructive thing that our, you know, that we as a people have encountered in a long time. Um, I think that it's, that what it's done and doing to people is we're just at the very tip of the iceberg and seeing like how destructive that is. Um, you know, I think we can all remember a time when, when mental health wasn't such a hot topic. Um, and I can't help but feel like most of that kind of the issue there is kind of pointing back to social media or something adjacent to it. Um, uh, people's lack of interaction, real life interaction, like what, you know, on and on and on and on. Um, I just think that it's, uh, I would be, I would be a bit of a hypocrite the way that I feel in, in the way that I feel so strongly about it. If I partook in it, um, too much of a degree at all. So, um, I, I've gone most of my life kind of being okay with living in that sort of hypocrisy because it felt like kind of a, a mild hypocrisy. Um, and it was one that it was like self, you know, it was self-appointed. So I, I was not really, um, there's no one else to really kind of imposing that on me. And so, um, it definitely feels good to be off of it. Um, and it feels good to kind of put my money where my mouth is in that regard. Um, there are certain aspects of course that I miss about it. I found out about a lot of artists that way. I've even hired artists through Instagram and things like that. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, you know, even for how ill I feel about it, for the culture at large, it's also just a massive time suck for me. And I'm just a person that doesn't really, um, I don't really, uh, do well with things that aren't, um, productive. And I have enough kind of going on in my head and on my personal little to-do lists and things to keep me busy 24 hours a day. Uh, so I don't need any sort of thing infiltrating that and just wasting my time. Sure. Sure. Yeah. 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 No, I, I think it's, it's funny because I think the people that put the most critical eye towards, um, you know, social media, whatever parenting, like all the things we were just discussing. Um, I think because of the nature of this, um, the, the subculture that we were raised in, you know, to whatever question everything and to look at things in a different light. I think that because we ask these questions and because we go through these thought exercises in ways that, you know, frankly, a lot of people who, you know, don't have the same experience as us don't think about it in those terms. You know? no, no, yeah, that's true. And I, and I think it is that the fact that, and I'm sure you've encountered this too, where it's like, there are many people within the context of, of, you know, our peers who are just like, yeah, like I'm not going to have kids because this world is so horrible. And you're like, I get it. I understand. <laughs> like, I understand. I, per- I totally do. Yeah. yeah. Like, I, I have a, a, a seven year old child and like, I, I can't look anybody in the eye and be like, no, I understand why you wouldn't want to have a child. But then I, in my head, I'm like, damn it, because this person who is expressing that to me, who has like, you know, an amazing partner in life and would probably be unbelievable parents. Yeah. And they have, you know, a conscientious, conscientious objector, not going to have a child. I'm like, man, I wish I could take some of those kids from those other people who haven't even thought about this to put it with those yeah. people. Yeah, I know. No kidding. 
<laughs> but yeah, it's just, it's, but like I said, I, I think ultimately because you're putting these, these thoughts and whether it's people actually taking the step that you did where they're removing themselves from social media, but you need to have that, that personal audit to the level of comfort that you have with these things. Otherwise, yeah, you just march along and don't ever question anything. For sure. And you know, I, I, my kind of, um, solve personally for the little bit of interaction that I do have, you know, um, the band has a a fan club of sorts called the blessed resistance, which is kind of an online community. And so I'm on there kind of commenting and I post a ton of stuff and I'm interacting with people. And so that's, that's, uh, a little dose, you know, to me, like a little healthy dose of, of that (laughs) little Uh, little dopamine rush. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) No, that's cool. Well, uh, dude, I really appreciate you hanging out, Ryan. This is, uh, this has been super fun and I hope you've enjoyed it in some capacity. Absolutely. Thanks. Oh, Hey there. Thanks for sticking around. Thanks Ryan for coming on the show. And I also want to thank Ryan Downey, his manager, the manager of his band for, uh, hooking up this conversation. Thank you, Ryan. I don't know if you're actually listening to this, but uh, thank you nonetheless. I hope you feel the uh, positive vibes that are, they're garnished from me. thanking you. <laughs> what do we got next week? Well, first of all, let's talk about how much fun that conversation was where I talked to Ryan Clark about his, uh, you know, Xing up at school. I just, I love that. I, I, I reflect on my time as a, as a, you know, burgeoning straight edge kid in high school and just, just Xing up at every day. It's like, what was I, what was I doing? Well, I was really proud of it. That's what I was. And I still am for that matter. Cause I still call myself straight edge and I'm 38 years old. Anyways, obviously you can tell I've had a lot of coffee right now. What do I got next week? I have Chris Papadak, which I've never said his last name out loud, so I'm probably butchering it, but most people call him Poppy or Chris, but uh, Chris plays the drums in the band called Hawthorne Heights, and he also plays in the Story Changes, and he is a, uh, a really interesting dude. I mean, hardcore kid through and through, and uh, you know, plays in Hawthorne Heights, which I, I know most people wouldn't really kind of connect to hardcore in Hawthorne Heights, but uh, you know, they're they're a, a real deal, uh, I wouldn't say hardcore band, but they're a real deal band. You know, they've been doing it for a long time, and uh, Chris has a lot of interesting insights that we were able to kind of dive into, and then becoming straight edge as an adult, like so much interesting stuff. So that's what we got next week. It's always fun on the show, right? I throw curveballs at you all the time, and I've got some great curveballs coming up for you like I always do. Thanks to our good buddies at Sirius XM. They offer amazing commercial free music plus sports, talk, comedy, and news. They have it all. And then you can get your first three months of Sirius XM outside the car for just $1. Go to SiriusXM.com slash words to see offer details and to subscribe. That's Sirius, S-I-R-I-U-S, XM.com slash words. The offer is only available to new Sirius XM streaming subscribers. Sirius XM, no car required. But now really, goodbye. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. Shh. Hi there, I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. We're real-life best friends, but we met playing fake-life best friends, Turk and JD, on the sitcom Scrubs. 20 years later, we've decided to rewatch the series one episode at a time, and put our memories into a podcast you can listen to at home. We're going to get all our special guest friends like Sarah Chalk, John C. McGinley, Neil Flynn, Judy Reyes. Show creator Bill Lawrence, editors, writers, and even prop masters will tell us about what inspired the series and how we became a family. You can listen to the podcast Fake Doctors, Real Friends with Zach and Donald on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts.